You know, we've been talking a lot in these weeks together this summer about the return of Jesus. And we have been thinking about the, the fact of his return in general. And then we've been thinking in particular about the rapture of the church and the timing of all of that and, and what this return of Jesus will be like as it unfolds. And for many of us, these kinds of eschatological themes, these, these themes of the end of the age cause our minds to run to the book of Revelation because we know the book of Revelation um, talks a lot about end time events. And so if you'll forgive me for asking you to hold two passages, I want you to leave 1 Thessalonians 2 and go to Revelation chapter number 4. And you may be thinking, now, Pastor, if you are going to preach from three different passages today, it's going to be a long message. Well, it's actually not going to be that long of a message, but it's going to be a fast message, okay? So I'm going to be like Smokey and the Bandit today. I got a long way to go and a short time to get there. And so we're going to be, we're going to be moving pretty quickly. Let me give you, some of you may be thinking, oh man, Revelation, that scares me. I don't really know uh, if I want to, you know, even delve into that. I don't really understand Revelation. Let me help you understand the book of Revelation with a simple outline. There's 22 chapters in the book. And if you wanted to get a good understanding of it, just sort of a broad grasp of it, here's how you would outline it. Chapter one is, uh, Paul's, I'm sorry, John's vision on the Isle of Patmos where he sees Jesus in all of his glory. Chapter 2 and 3 record seven letters that Jesus dictated to John to write and send to seven actual churches in Asia Minor. Chapter 4 pictures for us the rapture of the church. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, John is called up into heaven. And so in chapter 4 and 5, you have a picture of the rapture, and then John is in heaven in those two chapters. Then in chapter number six, the scene shifts from heaven back down to earth and you have the beginning of the tribulation period. And from chapter six to chapter 18, it's the tribulation period. Now, fun fact that when you study those chapters, chapter six to 18, you will not find the church mentioned on the earth a single time for those entire chapters, the church is in heaven while the tribulation is unfolding on the earth. Somebody say, praise the Lord. We're in heaven during that time. Chapter 19, the tribulation period comes to an end with the return of Jesus. Jesus comes back from heaven to the earth. And you have from chapter 19 through chapter number 22, his uh, establishment of the millennial reign and ultimately um, uh, eternity, the new heaven and the new earth. There you go. I just gave you 22 chapters of Revelation in about two minutes, all right? So that's a broad overview of the book. But I want to direct your attention right now to chapter number four and verse four. Listen to what John writes about, what he sees when he arrives in heaven. Now, he sees the throne of Jesus. He says, around the throne, this is chapter four, verse four, and around the throne there were 24 seats or, or smaller thrones, if you will. And upon these seats, I saw 24 elders sitting. So John's called up to heaven. Jesus' throne, the, the throne of God is in the center of heaven. And then surrounding that throne, there are 24 seats holding 24 elders. Here's the question you ought to ask. Who are these 24 elders? Who do they represent? 
Well, there are two hints in verse number four. The first hint is found in verse number four when it says, these 24 elders were clothed in white raiment. So what they're wearing is a hint. And then the last part of the verse says, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. There's the second hint. Now, when we're asking who are these 24 elders, we can immediately decide, well, they're not angels. Because nowhere in the Bible is it said that an angel wears a crown. That's never, ever stated in Scripture. The second hint has to do not only with their crowns, which are promised only to the church, by the way, but the second hint has to do with the white robes that they're wearing. Now, does the Bible tell us in any other place about a group of people wearing white robes? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked, and yes, the answer is yes, it does. It's Revelation 19. Look at it with me, if you will. Revelation 19 and verse number 7, where the Bible says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Pop quiz, who's the Lamb? That's Jesus, right? And then his wife, pop quiz, who's the wife of the Lamb? The church, the bride of Christ. So let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of Jesus is come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And to her, the church, it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So in Revelation chapter 4 verse 4 when it says that there are 24 elders around the throne of Christ, those elders represent the church washed white in the blood of Jesus. The robes are the righteousness of Christ and wearing crowns. So then the question becomes, where did these these, uh, Christians, these saints of God, the church in heaven, wearing the robes of the righteousness of Christ, where did the church receive the crowns? Why are we wearing crowns? Well, to answer the question, I want you to go back to our original text now, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, where Paul says something to us about these crowns that we will wear in heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, only one verse. It's verse number 19. Paul asks, For what is our hope... Or what is our joy or what is our crown of rejoicing? Paul says, what is it that gives us hope of this joy and crown of rejoicing when Jesus appears or in his presence? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our Joy. Notice the question that Paul asks. What is it that will give me hope that when I stand in the presence of Jesus, I will have exceeding joy and wear a crown of rejoicing? Notice that his answer is not to say, well, I'm just there, right? I mean, that's, that's joy enough that I'm just saved and I'm glad to be in heaven. That's not his answer. His answer to the question, what will give me hope of having this crown of rejoicing is, he says to his brothers and sisters, you with me in the presence of Jesus. 
the fact that you will be with me in the presence of Jesus, that is going to give me greater joy, even a crown of rejoicing. See, here's what Paul understood. He understood that one day his life and service for Jesus would be judged. And that his investment into the lives of other people, his investment in the salvation and the discipling of other people would produce great joy when one day those people in whom he had invested his life for their eternal benefit, they would be with him in heaven and that would produce even greater joy on that day when his life would be judged. Verse 19 could not be more clear. Verse 20, for you are our glory and our joy. Now, my dear Christian friend, my my brother, listen to me. Dear Christian sister, hear me. Do you understand that you are headed to a judgment? Do you get that? Not for your sins. You're not going to be judged for your sins. Jesus has already borne that judgment on the cross. Somebody say, praise God for the cross. Jesus bore our sins. You're not going to be judged for your sins. But what you and I will be judged for when we stand before the Lord is our life of service to our Savior. God will call into account our lives of service to Christ. Now, are you still holding your place in 1 Corinthians chapter number three? Would you go there, please? And let me read to you what the Bible says about this judgment to where we will appear. 1 Corinthians chapter three and verse number 10, Paul writes, according to the grace of God which is given unto me, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another will build thereon. But let every man take heed, be careful, how he builds upon that foundation. For there is no other foundation that a man can lay except that which I have laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation... Gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. He's simply saying in verse number 25, there are various building materials we can build with. He says, know this, you can build with any of these, but know this, verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try... Judge every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, although it will be as by fire. Now, in the earlier verses of this chapter, Paul is confronting the Corinthian believers with a tendency that they possessed, and quite honestly, that we possess as well. And it is a tendency to align ourselves with particular ministries or people, uh, organizations, even denominations that we perceive as having the most eternal 
significance. In this particular case, some of them were saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul. And others of them were saying, well, I'm not a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Apollos. Do you see that in chapter 3 and verse number 4? I'm of Paul. I am of Apollos. And he says in verse number uh, 5, who are we? Who is Paul or Apollos? But servants, that's what the word ministers means. We are servants by whom you have believed. And he goes on in verse number five to say, by the way, every person, look at it, verse five, every person has been called a servant, even as the Lord has given to every man, every person, this call to a life of service. One of the things to me that's interesting about this passage is that between verse number five and verse number 15, in those 11 verses, eight different times, Paul refers to every person over and over. Every man, any person, any man, every person, over and over, he is making the point that all of us have been called to be ministers or all of us have been called to be servants or all of us have been called to serve the Lord. Write this principle down. If not in your notes, let it burn in your heart. Know this, that because every believer is called to be the servant of the Lord, we can be sure that every Christian's service will be judged. I'm going to say it again. Because every Christian is called to be the servant of the Lord. You can be certain that every Christian's life of service will be judged. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Serving Christ is not like peewee baseball. You don't necessarily get a trophy just because you're on the team. The Bible says that we will be judged for the life of service that we offer to the Lord. Now, let's notice Paul's uh, message in chapter 3. First of all, by jotting this down, he teaches us that every Christian, every Christian is building their life on the foundation of Christ. Every Christian is building their life on the foundation of Christ. Now, by the way, this is the definition of, of what it means to be a Christian. When you come to faith in Jesus, you step out of the, the, the shifting sands of the world and you stand, you plant your life by faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to put our faith in him, to trust in him. Do you remember in Psalm 40? where the psalmist said, I cried unto the Lord. He heard my cry and he lifted me up out of a horrible pit. And what did he do? He set my feet upon a solid rock. Jesus used this terminology in the Sermon on the Mount. When at the end of chapter number seven of Matthew, he said, after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, now every person who hears my words and does them, that person's like a man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain will fall and the wind will blow and the floods will rise, but that house will stand because in me he is standing upon the rock. But every person who hears my words and rejects them doesn't do them. I will liken that person to the man who built his house upon the sand and the winds will fall or the winds will blow and the rain will fall and the floods will rise and that house will fall because it was built upon the sand. What Paul is teaching us is that when we come to Christ, this is what we do by faith. We plant our feet on the rock of Jesus Christ our firm foundation. 
The old hymn writer said, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so we understand that Christ is the foundation. Verse number 13, Paul says to us that he has laid this foundation. Verse 10, rather, he has laid this foundation. But we build our lives, we then, standing upon that foundation, we begin to build our lives, our lives of service to our Savior on that rock. And he says to us in verse number 10, now listen, the foundation is Jesus, and you're going to build, but you need to be careful with what you're building. Watch the materials that you build with. Do you see it in verse number 10? He says, um, every man, let every man take heed how he builds. The foundation is laid, verse number 11, but verse number 12 says, now as you go to build, know that there are different materials. He says, you can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Or you can build with wood, hay, and stubble. Now gold, silver, and precious stones, obviously these are things of great value. These are things that matter, that they're lasting, that, that they have great value in and of themselves and they're beautiful materials. Wood, hay, and stubble, these are worthless materials. These are worthless materials that will be burned up. They won't stand and they won't last and they're, they're cheap uh, materials with which to build a life. He says, be careful how you build. Now, what does that mean to us? I mean, in practical terms, what would it look like to build a life on the foundation of Christ, which is a life where we're building with beautiful, lasting materials? Well, I would suggest to you that it would mean that we're building a life walking in the truth. We're building a life where we're standing above the truth and we're walking in that truth. It's a life of witness for Christ where I'm speaking to people I love about the gospel and I'm inviting them to come and to know Jesus. It would be a life of worship, where the theme of my life is a response to God for his worship. It would be a life of stewardship, where what I have belongs to me only because God has entrusted it to me and I, I steward my life and my possessions for his glory. It would be a life of disciple-making, winning people to Christ, praying for people's salvation, inviting people to come and see and hear the gospel, and then making disciples of them as I grow as a disciple as well. It would be a life of service, serving the Lord and his purposes and his kingdom and his church. Those things would be gold, silver, and precious stones, wouldn't they? Beautiful, lasting ways of living. And then there are other, there's another way to live. You can build a life that would be marked by worthless things, a life so totally focused on self, so consumed with the promotion and the comfort and the pride of self that it's all about ourselves. It would be a life of sinfulness. It would be a life of silence with regard to the gospel, never speaking the name of Jesus, never uh, ever investing in eternity for someone else. It'd be a life of indifference to the things of God and to the gospel. You see, Jesus said, if you know me, you're building your life on this foundation of who I am, but be careful how you build. In fact, I would suggest to you a prayer that you and I ought to pray daily, just simply to say, Lord, help me to choose to build wisely today with materials that are beautiful and that are of great value. 
So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that every Christian is building our lives upon the foundation of Christ. The second thing he tells us in this passage is that every Christian will be evaluated, every Christian will be evaluated for rewards at the judgment seat. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse number 13. Notice the absolute certainty of it. Every man's work. How many Christians' works will be judged? Not some, not most. All. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day. This is a day. It is a pre-prescribed and appointed day. And we will arrive at that day one day. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. For the fire shall try every man's work to see of what sort it is or what material it is. Will it stand the test of fire? Now this day and this fire and this testing that is being described in this verse is an event that the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. It says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How many of us will stand there? All of us will. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, because we know that we're building our lives, all of us who are Christians are building our lives on the foundation of Christ, and we have to choose which materials we build with, what kind of life of service we build, and we should know that one day we will be called into evaluation and a judgment for how we built this life. Then I want to close our time together today by answering two questions about this judgment seat of Christ. First question is exactly what's going to happen on that day. What will this judgment be like Well, write it down this way. On the the, uh, day of the judgment seat, the fire, here's what will happen. The fire of Christ's holiness will try our works in an instant. We'll test or judge our lives in an instant. You should understand that all of our motives will be revealed in that day. All of our motives, all of the things that we value, all of our priorities, our decisions, our activities will all be judged on that day. The fire of God will test it. Now, this is the fire of Christ's holiness. Interestingly, in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees Jesus in his glory, He describes him this way. He says, I turned to see the one that spoke with me and his eyes were like eyes of fire. They were burning fire as if to say he could see through everything. He saw all of what was true and false about my life. Everything will be seen. That's what verse 13 says. The fire will try it. He goes on to tell us in verse number 15 that if any man's Work is worthless. Everything about that life that was built with wood, hay, and stubble that was worthless will be burned up. And everything about that life which is valuable, gold, silver, and precious stones, will abide. Now, by the way, we should agree to something together, shouldn't we? 
And that is to say that none of us, not a single Christian in this room who stands upon the foundation of Christ building our lives, none of us has built our life to this point out of only wood, hay, and or out of only gold, silver, and precious stones. Do you agree? None of us have, have got a perfect track record with that. None of us have built our lives only out of these valuable materials. And in the same way, no true Christian only has a life of wood, hay, and stubble. Here's the fact about all of us. If you're listening, shout amen. We're a mixed bag, right? There's some gold, silver, and precious stones, but there's also some wood and some hay and some stubble. And on that day, all that is worthless from our lives will be burned up and all that had value will remain. When we get to the judgment seat, the fire of Christ's holiness will evaluate our works. The second thing then that will happen as a result of that judgment is that rewards will be received or lost. The Bible is clear about this. Rewards will be received or lost. Verse number 14, he says, If any man's work abide through the fire, it was of great value. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Think about that. You will receive reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But the opposite is true as well. Verse number 15, if any man's work is burned up, that is the fire consumes it, and it was of worthless, uh, no value, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. That is, he will suffer the loss of that reward. He will not be rewarded for that. Verse number 15 says, but he himself shall be saved, even though it will be as by fire. Now, every person at the judgment seat is going to heaven. This is not a determination of who goes to heaven or who doesn't. Every person at the judgment seat is a Christian, and every person there is already saved by Christ. It's not a judgment of our souls and our sins. It is a judgment of our service to our Savior. So everyone there goes to heaven. The fire of Christ's holiness will try our works, and the result will determine the rewards we receive or not. Now you may be thinking about this and thinking, all right, awards. What will my rewards be? Maybe I will get a all expense paid trip to Punta Gorda. Well, listen, you're going to be in heaven. Okay. That's the greatest resort of all. So this is not the price is right. It's not that kind of reward, but what would our rewards be? Maybe there are many. Let me suggest two that I think the Bible is really clear about. One is, write it down, the first reward we will receive will be the pleasure of God. Now, wouldn't this be enough for any child of God to just have our Savior look at our lives and just be pleased with our lives? Now, remember, he's pleased with us in Christ because of what Christ has done, but I want him to be pleased not just with my faith in Christ, but with the life that I've built since I've come to know Christ. I want him to be pleased with that. And in fact, that reward of his pleasure will be what we'll experience. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn if you'd like, but I know you've already got cramped fingers from all the places you've been holding. But I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to what verse number 8 says. But we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor, we build, we work. 
Wherefore we labor so that whether we are present in this life or absent from the body and standing before him, we may be accepted of him. The word means pleasing. That we may be pleasing to him. And then he goes on after talking about this evaluation of whether or not we are pleasing, our works were pleasing or not. He says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every man, how many, every person may receive the things done in his body according to that that he has done, whether good or bad. Do you understand that it's the judgment seat of Christ which will determine our works and the pleasure that God has had in the life that we have lived. That's the first reward, the pleasure of God. Secondly, the Bible tells us that we will be rewarded with crowns of glory. And I want you to go back to 2 Thessalonians now where we began. 2 Thessalonians chapter number two, and look at this verse one more time where Paul talks about this crown of rejoicing. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter two and verse 19. He says, we'll receive crowns of glory. For what is our hope and our joy? What is even our crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming for you are our glory and our joy. Paul says the fact that you are the fruit of our building will bring to us a crown of rejoicing on that day. I said to you at the beginning that, that those elders around the throne in Revelation are not uh, angels, that, the, that crowns are only promised to the church. And did you know that the New Testament talks about five different crowns that Christians might receive? This verse talks about the crown of rejoicing. It also talks, the Bible speaks about the crown of glory that we might receive. It talks about the crown of life. The crown of righteousness, and it talks about an imperishable crown. You see, when you stand before Jesus, if you have built your life on the foundation of Christ and you have invested your life in things that will matter in eternity, if your life has been built with gold, silver, precious stones, these valuable materials to the glory of God, then when you go to the judgment seat and your life is evaluated, while some things will be burned up, if you and I have lived as we ought, then there will be crowns, many crowns that we will receive. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, now, pastor, it's a little selfish to want all the crowns, isn't it? I mean, like you're trying to be God's most valuable player. You want to walk out with the most trophies, right? No, but let me tell you why I want to receive some crowns. Will you go back one last time? to Revelation chapter number four. And I want to show you what these elders do in Revelation chapter four. And I want you to imagine, in your mind, I want you to put yourself in this place, in heaven, called up with John around the throne of God. Verse number four, and around the throne there were 24 seats, and upon those seats I saw these 24 elders clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the people of God, the bride of Christ, crowns of gold upon their heads. They've been through the judgment seat. They've made themselves ready for the marriage of the lamb. They're now robed in those righteous robes. They're wearing those crowns. John sees that and he says in verse number five, and so out of the throne, there proceed these lightnings, 
and these thunderings, the place is rumbling with the glory of God. There's seven lampstands burning, which represent the Spirit of God. Verse 6 says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne there were four living creatures that were full of eyes. Look at verse number 8. And these four living creatures, each of them had six wings. And they would fly around the throne of God and they would cry and sing, resting not day or night, And here's their cry. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Imagine the glory of heaven with lightnings and thunders and fire and and creatures singing, holy is the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Verse number nine shifts his attention back to those 24 thrones and the elders and he says and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks unto him that sat upon the throne who lives forever then the 24 elders fall down before him that sat upon the throne and they worship him that lives forever and ever do you see this and they cast their crowns before his throne And they said, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive the glory and the honor and the power. You want to hear why I want crowns on that day? Are you listening to your pastor? You want to hear why it matters that the life that we build is a life to his glory? Because when we pass through the judgment seat and our lives have been built in such a way that gives him glory, what remains of our lives through that judgment will produce rewards of crowns. And when we see Jesus being worshiped, we will fall to our knees and take the crowns on our head and cast them at his feet and say, I'm not worthy of crowns. Jesus is worthy of crowns. That's why I want crowns. Not for my glory, but that I might have something to lay at the feet of the one who loved me and saved me. I want you to imagine this morning what you will have on that day to lay at his feet. And I want you to leave here today praying, God, let me live every day in a way that my life today will survive the judgment seat.